Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Nick and Manny's Infinite Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Emmanuel Fuentes. Here with me is our other co-host. It's Nick Reeves again. I am the the co-host, like you said. Yeah, you're not my guest. I wouldn't do that to you. I would never call you a guest. Never. I don't know if I actually did call you a guest in one episode, but the point is we're back, baby. <laughs> we're here. It's been another week. Yeah, we're we're back. It's been a hell of a week for me. How's it been for you, buddy? It's been... It's been... It's been, <laughs> it's been a week, yeah, to say the least. Uh, you know, school started back up, which we'll get into, but it's been a lot of moving, unpacking, and sort of preparing for the next couple of months of school. Yeah, I didn't. I never minded moving to college as much, just because there was only so much you could take. There's only so much you had room for, and like you know, I got used to doing that. I guess I did it eight times by the end of my my college tenure. Mm. So I kind of had it down to a science, which was nice. Yeah, uh, we also have it, you know, down to a science. I know exactly what I need when I need it. I have a funny story about uh, what my roommate said when oh boy. he saw that. But we'll get into that in a little bit later. First off, let's have some business talks. Thank you to everyone who has been listening to the podcast. Thank you to everyone who's been sharing it. Can't stress how much it means to us that people are actually listening to it, sharing it, liking it, the messages that we get throughout the week of people enjoying it. It really does mean a lot to us. We just want to share that straight up. Once again, you can find us over on anchor.fm slash infinite dash podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, pretty much wherever you got your podcast. We're not on Stitcher yet, but we'll work that out soon. Yeah. Uh, again, it's been it's been a wonderful few weeks. Last week's episode had a great response from everybody. It was a long one. Uh, it, like we said, you you thought it was going to be a half hour. We ended up going two hours. It, it was a lot of fun, and people seem to dig the longer episode. And we're back again. Yes, indeed, we are back. So, Nick, well, let, let's let's start this off nice and strong. Nick, what have you been playing this week? What have I been playing this week? Okay, uh, we, we've got a fun one to get to. I've been playing a couple things. I'll, I'll get to that one last. I played more Skyward Sword. I got through a couple more sections. I'm kind of sipping that game slowly. I, I'm not super into it, so I only play for like an hour at a time whenever I play it. Uh, getting further in that, the controls aren't bothering me as much as they did the last couple weeks, so I guess that's good. Moving on from that, uh, I went to Vintage Stock over the weekend, bought a couple things, uh, a couple vinyls like you saw in our Discord, and uh, I bought a couple games there, and I started playing one of them today, actually, which was the GoldenEye remake on the Wii. Have you ever played that? I've not played it on the Wii. I played it on the 360. Oh, that's right. They did. They did on the 360 and PS3 like a year or two later, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So I played it on the 360. Yeah, I've I played um, the first few missions of the original GoldenEye at one point, and I've seen the movie a few times. And it's interesting how they adapted this to the new game because it's Daniel Craig and Judy Dench are in there. Daniel Craig is the Bond that you have. He has full voice acting. They copy what the first level of the first couple levels of the game are and what the first few minutes of the movie are and all that. But they make a lot of tweaks. They sort of tweak it for the modern world. I think I saw that the writer of the game is the same guy who wrote the GoldenEye movie. So he just sort of kind of updated everything that the first movie was technologically. And he updated that for for the late 2000s, early 2010s when it came out. Uh, played it on the Wii, like I said, and I'm still getting used to the pointer controls. I haven't gotten them down to a science yet. I might switch to the GameCube controller because that is a way to play it. We'll see how that goes, but uh, I played the first few missions and I'm enjoying that. I played something else on the Wii, though, and we, we got to talk about this one, buddy. Are you ready? 
Does it happen to be related to James Cameron's avatar? It is James Cameron's avatar, the video game for the Wii. We got it in again. We forgot to mention Avatar. Well, I should say I forgot to mention Avatar last week. I felt really guilty about not mentioning Avatar last week. So pretty much solely because of that, I started playing the James Cameron's Avatar game on the Wii that I bought a, a month or two back. And it's okay, I think, maybe. Okay. It's interesting because because the Wii was like the best-selling uh, console of that generation. The other two sold really well, the PS3 and the 360. But the Wii was the big console of that generation that everybody had. So games would be made for the 360 and the PS3 because they were powerful and they did have great install bases. But the Wii was so big that you would get that game usually in a compromised state of some kind on the Wii just because that's such a huge market that they wouldn't be selling to otherwise. So they had to do something. And my understanding is that the version on the Wii and I think on one of the other consoles, it might just be like a DS version. But it's different from what the regular game is on the on the the 360 and the PS3, and it's to say it's compromised. I would say would probably be an understatement. It's super li- linear. It almost feels kind of on rails at times. Like you're you're running through like the top of trees, the branches on the trees in Pandora, and it's really dark for one. So the the visuals of Avatar that look so amazing, you don't really get a lot of that in the first few missions. You're just kind of running through a set path of branches. And you're doing very clunky combat with the Wii Remote and the Nunchuck. It's not particularly good. It's playable, I would say. My favorite part was the last mission I did, which was the flying creatures. I think they're called Banshees. But it's an on-rails, almost Star Fox-like flying section where you're, you're flying on the Banshee. You're trying to collect XP points as you go. You're taking out the the helicopters and stuff like that. And it was probably the most fun i've had in the game i've only played like the first three missions i don't think it's probably going to be too long of an experience it's not as terrible as i feared it would be but i wouldn't say it's good so you listed a whole lot of negatives and i'm kind of just curious what what are the actual like redeeming qualities about the game i think like i think the the flying is is was fun it 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 sort of opened it opened the world up a little bit so you're you're through the sky it's bright outside you can see the the aesthetic of pandora more which i thought if nothing else even though the wii looks like crap uh uh, today and even back in the day when it came out because it wasn't an hd console i think the aesthetic of something can still shine through like i think Mario Galaxy 8, for example, looks amazing on the Wii because the aesthetic of the game was great, even though polygon-wise and uh, graphical fidelity-wise, it wasn't it wasn't up to par with the competition at the time. So I think it looks okay once once it gets a little brighter outside. The combat isn't terrible. It's just, I mean, it's clunky. Just it's what you would expect for uh, for action on the Wii in 2009. Uh, but I think it, if you want a redeeming quality, I would say it's more playable than I thought it would be. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's something that always comes up with Nintendo and their games in general is the way that they actually utilize the hardware yeah. to best serve the game. Because you mentioned Mario Galaxy, and I'll even say like Mario Sunshine, which is on the GameCube. Those games are not the greatest graphically, but a lot of people don't care because of the way that it's utilized to its best potential. And I think the same thing can be said for something like Mario Odyssey when you compare that compared to something like pokemon legends of arceus and you see the way that different developers actually utilize the hardware and seeing when an actual graphical difference matters and i yeah i think you can see that a lot um i actually looked up how long it takes to beat avatar the game yes uh and the average is about eight hours for the main story for the wii version did you check that specifically 
Well, it says PC, PlayStation 3, Xbox 360. Oh, wait. Platforms. Mobile, Nintendo DS, PC, PlayStation 3, PlayStation Portable, Wii, Xbox 360. Okay. So it, it is like a totally different game with a different story is, is my understanding. So yeah. I, I'm interested if it does end up taking that long. I wouldn't. I, I would be surprised if it's more than five or six hours, to be honest. But I don't know for sure. I haven't seen what all the differences are. I just kind of booted it up one night. I think I played it for like an hour, maybe an hour and a half. It's, like I said, not as terrible as I thought it would be. I bought it kind of as a joke because we had the running avatar joke and it was cheap to buy. And I get why it was cheap to buy because I bought it from a store that, that prices things according to their actual market value. And it, that game was cheap, so I knew what I was getting into. But, oh no, it's it's fine. It It's probably less than fine, but it's playable, I guess. But you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about Sunshine and Galaxy on, on their consoles and how graphically they don't look that great. Uh, personally, I don't know how you feel about this, but personally, I'm much more of an art style and aesthetic versus graphics kind of guy. That's probably a lot of growing up with Nintendo and Nintendo since, I guess, probably the N64 era has had inferior graphical fidelity to the, the other consoles on the market. So I'm kind of used to that. Uh, games like Galaxy and Sunshine, they have specific aesthetics that I don't think you can ever forget. And like that's why people I think that's a lot of why people still love those games and still want to play them today is that there's a certain feeling that they remember with the aesthetic and everything like that, that they, they still enjoy today. And I think even with games coming out today, like Halo Infinite, for example, when they had that first gameplay reveal in E3 2020 or not E3 because they didn't have one that year. But in 2020, when they had the gameplay reveal, I thought it looked good because I thought the art style looked like what I wanted it to be. Everybody else seemed to say the graphics looked terrible and I don't think they look that bad personally, but it was more important to me that the art style looked good. And I think the art style for that looked good. That's that's what I always prioritize in that situation. Yeah, I, I'm one of the people that, like, I don't need a game to be the greatest graphically, but I really am into art styles. Like, one of the games that I downloaded using Xbox Game Pass, there we go, I gotta get my ad plug in. Phil, Phil, <laughs> hire me. I put out a clip for you today, hire me. Um, it's this side-scroller called Grim Fan, not Grim Fandango, Grim Noir, some noir something like that okay and it's a black and white sort of like 50s aesthetic game so i like games like that or even things like don't starve which is a 2.5d sort of uh, game that you're going through or psychonauts that's come out recently these aren't like the greatest graphically games like they're not a naughty dog last of us game but what they do is they use that art style to sort of present their charm or their uh, uniqueness to it, whereas every game that looks like a Halo or a Call of Duty just gets all muddled together. I feel that a lot with modern games, is that they all look kind of bland. I feel that the way with modern movies, too, is that a lot of them just look kind of bland. It doesn't feel like there's any sense of style, and I prefer when, even if something takes a swing and a miss at a stylistic choice, I prefer that it makes a stylistic choice rather than just looking like everything else. Yeah, completely understand. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, so what have you been playing? Well, I started playing Spider-Man Miles Morales again. I think I mentioned that on the last episode, but I continue playing it again. Okay. Once again, fantastic. It's it's so good. I just feel like it's the best Spider-Man combat. I know that there's a lot of arguments within saying like, oh, but you don't have all these other Spider-Man features that were in other games. Like you can't web, uh, not web zip, but web slingshot yourself across the map. You can't do certain moves that you could in games like web of shadows or edge of time 
And while I understand that, I think that this is just the most refined Spider-Man gameplay that we can get. And I think it just works so well. And the story, in my opinion, is really good. I think the Roxxon villain is bad. I don't really care for that whole subplot. But I think what it does with the Tinkerer in that game, because I'm not going to spoil it, what they do with the Tinkerer in that game, I actually really think that it hones in on the idea of Spider-Man and sort of managing expectations, managing responsibilities, while also trying to keep a neighborhood safe. And I feel like that really comes through in Miles Morales. Yeah, I've, like I said last week, I heard the game was good. I heard it was really short. Probably takes about eight hours to beat like the Avatar game, I think I think is what you said last week. Yeah, it's about eight hours. Yeah. I like what you said, though, about Miles trying to keep the neighborhood together, because if we want to segue into movies, uh, I know you didn't. Did you watch the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer? Okay, I I watched it and it was it's more of what I don't really like about what they're doing to Spider-Man is that it's so big now. He's such a part of this larger Marvel story that I think it loses the neighborhood aspect of Spider-Man. Like, I think where the Raimi movies really succeed is that Peter is always down on his luck. He's always got problems, and he's got very human problems, whether it's money, whether it's relationships. Everything that happens to him feels extremely human in a way that I think the Tom Holland movies in the MCU have kind of lost. I think Tom Holland is really good in that role, and I think Homecoming kind of has some of that. It has charming moments like him having to go into an alleyway, change out of his clothes, and change into his costume. Stuff like that that I enjoy and the interactions he has with people in his neighborhood, like the guy who owns the bodega and everything like that. But it loses that, especially in in Far From Home. That It starts going that direction in Infinity War because he gets pulled into the bigger the bigger narrative of the MCU. And I just I don't like that direction for Spider-Man. It's like not that those movies are bad, but it doesn't feel like Spider-Man in that way. And I miss the old feeling of Spider-Man. Someone had brought up an interesting thing because they were talking about the trailer And they mentioned how the idea of Spider-Man was never that he needed a whole lot of people to help defeat villains and stuff. Because they brought up, I guess, spoilers for Spider-Man No Way Home. But the Sinister Six is being heavily alluded to in in the No Way Home trailer. You know, Alfred Molina's back. We see a pumpkin bomb from Willem Dafoe, supposedly. Electro is back. Uh, Sandman may or may not be back. That one is still open. The other one is Lizard may or may not be back, and we still don't have a, a sixth one, supposedly. I think it'll probably end up being Mysterio again, but we'll find out. But people were saying like, oh yeah, well, of course they need to bring in Toby and Andrew because Tom Holland can't handle it by himself. And that's sort of the point of Spider-Man is that he's not supposed to be able to handle it by himself, but he always does. So that's like one of the things that people have brought up that... I can see that argument. I I tend to like some of what they do with uh, Tom Holland. I actually really love Homecoming. I think it's just that perfect blend of being a high schooler, being a hero, managing it all. I know that a lot of people complain that, oh, he doesn't really face loss in that movie except for losing the suit. But I think what it does really well is that it replaces loss with the idea of with Vulture especially, of knowing who and who you can and can't protect in your life. And I think that's really a good thing because by the end of the movie, he has to ultimately give up the Vulture, which is his crush's father. And it sort of ruins that relationship for him, but he knows that he has to do it in order for him to 
be a good hero. And there's really good stuff in Homecoming that I really do like. I still think Russo brothers know him better than John Watts personally. And that's the way that I feel with a lot of characters. But I haven't seen the Spider-Man trailer. I'm hoping I don't until next week for Shang-Chi, which I will end up seeing. But that's pretty much it on my thoughts on that. Okay, we can move on from, from Spider-Man if you want. I just thought that was kind of a natural segue and I did want to talk about it a little bit. Because it, it was the big thing that happened this week. We're still seeing memes about it. We're still seeing conversation about it. And You're seeing memes? I've seen some memes. I haven't seen a single meme. Oh wow! I've seen I've seen that still of Alfred Molina, but that's it. Yeah, I've seen a lot of a lot of uh, video superimpositions with different things happening with the with Alfred Molina in that trailer. Yeah, I haven't seen that mostly yeah. because I just see it and I just keep scrolling by. <laughs> Which I mean, I'm kind of surprised that I'm the only naysayer about the trailer. I'm kind of one of the people that believes they didn't need to have a trailer for a multitude of reasons. I think the trailer itself is bigger than the movie. And their numbers that came out today sort of prove that. But you got to market a movie, but I don't I still don't believe you needed a trailer. I think you need a trailer just because I think every movie needs a trailer. If for nothing else, then if you get an everyday person who just goes to a random movie and sees the trailer, that might be how they learn about the movie, because a lot of people don't hear about movies in the same way that you and I do. I think there's a lot more people than people in sort of a film kind of bubble know of that just don't follow movies at all but they'll see oh there's some there's such and such character that i recognize there's spider-man there's batman there's superman trailers are important for situations like that and i think in general it helps to market your movie if you have a trailer i mean that's the most obvious thing i've ever said but i think in this case they needed to hint that other characters were showing up past characters i think the way they did it was probably the best way they could and I think you do need to market this movie pretty heavily, especially in the situation that we're in right now where the box office is still uncertain for a lot of movies. I think this movie will probably do really well, uh, considering uh, we don't know yet what COVID will be like in December when this comes out. But I still think it'll do really well by these standards, and I think they're probably trying to maximize all that because I'm sure, like every other company out there, Sony's probably hurting. They had Did they have to push this movie a year? Uh, no, they didn't push this. Oh, okay. Okay, so... It's just everybody else that had to push stuff in, into this year. I guess this one wasn't one of those. But they'll have to push Venom, I think, into next year. That seems like the direction things are going. They're probably hurting somewhat, especially since the PS5's had a slow rollout, too. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if that all factored into it. I think, you know, for people like us, you don't need a trailer. And, you know, you, you're avoiding the trailer. I would like to avoid trailers if I can. I pretty much only watch trailers, for the most part, for stuff that I feel like I need to be sold on. Uh, I think you can... You can we can avoid trailers, but I think they do need it for the marketing push, especially in a time like this. But I do wonder, I do wonder if they needed a trailer like this, because I think this goes way further than just your film geek or your person who's in the know about a lot of stuff. Because everywhere has been asking, oh, Spider-Man No Way Home trailer, because we know that this person's in it. Everyone, pretty much everyone knows who's in this movie. What's it about? I mean, like, I, I haven't seen the trailer, but I can pretty much guess the entire trailer just from the cast of, like, one supporting character. I know the rest of the movie from that. So I do wonder, like, I know that they need a trailer, but I do wonder if they could have just done a trailer that shows nothing and just says, hey, there's Spider-Man coming out in December. Go watch it. Because I don't, I'm just a Grinch for this whole promotional, uh, I was going to say scam, promotional <laughs> um stuff that's been happening mostly because <laughs> i'm bitter towards everyone on the internet that has been 
harassing people for this Spider-Man trailer, but that's just my thought on it. No, I'm I'm grinchy about this kind of stuff, too. I mean, people who've been listening, they hear how cynical I am about how Disney handles things. This is partially Disney, the the weird relationship that Sony and, and Marvel have. But I'm cynical about this, too. Like, I for someone who loves the Raimi movies as much as I do, I love the first two. I think Spider-Man 3 is, is better than most people think. It's it, it hurts me seeing those characters in a movie that has, by comparison, such a lack of style. And it's only there for a big cross promotion thing. And it's part of a larger MCU thing. And it just feels like the soul has been sucked out of it. I'm cynical in that regard, and I'm a big Grinch about it. But from every other standpoint, I understand completely why they've done every single thing the way they have. I, I like the way they approached it in that they tell you one person, they hint at another, and I think anybody can probably figure out the direction they're going from here. But like I said, the common person may not have known that this was the direction they were going, and this will probably bring in some extra business because I don't think there's a ton of passion for the Tom Holland movies. The last two did really well, but I don't know... I don't know how much demand was there for a third one. Yeah, that I don't know either. I totally get I totally get your standpoint and I don't feel dissimilar from you, but I also I I totally get it. It's it's that thing where I understand why these companies handle things the way they do. I just wish they didn't. And don't and don't take this to like mean that I'm not excited for this movie. I'm very excited for this movie. I just don't need to be sold on it. I know that I'm going to go see it. I I'm excited for the movie, not excited for the promotion cuz I'm not excited for the internet. I'm just not. But things that I am excited for, Lego Star Wars, baby. Yeah. Lego Star Wars. <laughs> We're back to video games. So what else have I been playing? Well, I went back and I started replaying Lego Star Wars The Force Awakens because today, which is August 25th, was the opening night of Gamescom, which we got a new trailer for Lego Star Wars The Skywalker Saga. This game went silent after last year. It went silent after last year's Gamescom, I want to say, or Game Awards, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. It was supposed to come out last winter, got pushed back to this spring. Then it got delayed indefinitely. Then Arthur Parsons, who's been the game director for so many Lego games, a lot of the good ones as well, he left the studio. A bunch of other people started leaving the studio. Not a single word about where's Lego Star Wars? Where's Lego Star Wars? They couldn't say anything no one has said anything about lego star wars and today we got the trailer boy this game looks incredible i know that like you're not the hugest lego fan like you'll enjoy them for what they are and stuff but you're not gonna go out and play them like i do i'll pay 10 bucks for a game every now and then if i'm feeling an itch that that, that's my lego fandom exactly this game looks incredible from little things like adding like sparks or smoke to the to the new engine that they have to big things like including 24 planets they've redone the ui you now have skill trees when you level up your your characters and stuff they have specific screens for characters or vehicles it looks incredible you're gonna play through all nine of the games there's 24 i'm just i i it, it, it's just so wild this game has been in development for at least at least three years by the time it comes out. The last Lego game they did was in 2019, but I don't really count that because it was like a movie too and it was kind of a reskin of another <laughs> game. But before that was Lego DC Supervillains, which I haven't played. It's on my Steam list and I already have it, but I'm going to play it soon. But this is their magnum opus. They have been spending so much time on this. They built a new engine for this game. 
it's been delayed indefinitely for so long. We got a new release window of spring 2022. I just cannot wait for this game. It is going to be so good. I really hope it's going to be good. I, I watched that trailer today. I was like, you know, mar- marginally excited. This was this was one that I might have paid 20 bucks for by, by my Lego standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly, this is the cynic in me. I thought they were just going to sort of bring over Lego Star Wars The Complete Saga and then just do the other three movies, or I guess the other, uh, Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker, they would have made kind of smaller games for, and then they just would have brought over the assets for the Force Awakens game that they did. That was what my concern was that it would mostly just be old content, but I saw the trailer, I saw that gameplay, it looks incredibly refined, it looks great, like it, I don't know if it's pushing the power of the new consoles, but it looks right at home on those new consoles. The art style looks beautiful. The uh, the graphics look incredible for a Lego game. Like it looks like a ton of work was put into this. I'm I'm excited, much more excited for it now. I would say, and I might I might pay full price for it. It's it's a very exciting game. I just I I cannot wait. Lego games. I mean, they're a staple for me. I'll play other things as well, but I always come back to a Lego game if I just want to collect some coins and hear that noise. Mm-hmm. But this game, they have redone everything for this yep. game, it seems like. There are little things like the way that the studs look. Those are also different now. I uh, There's a scene where you open up the UI and there's a thing written in Arvish, which is the common Star Wars writing in there. So I looked it up. Well, I went through my dictionary and I went <laughs> to go find what it says. And it literally says conversion software. I'm like, oh, OK. So it's just a placeholder for stuff. But like mm-hmm. that is how excited I am for this. It looks so good. The animations on the face, they also look way better. They're much they more expressive. And the big thing for me was that camera. I think that camera just looks, I really like where they have it right now. It's a little bit over the shoulder, but much, but pulled back. But mm-hmm. it's not as pulled back as other Lego games where it's sometimes a side scroller or like your character's an eighth of the screen and stuff. This just puts you a lot closer to everything and there's a scene where Qui-Gon is going through Naboo and it just looks oh it looks so good I can't wait I wanted it to be this year but if I have to wait until spring 2022 for this game that looks massive and then they've already announced that they are going to be doing DLC for stuff like Clone Wars Bad Batch and Mandalorian oh sign me up it looks incredible I'm so excited you just mentioned DLC I was wondering if they Sort of like Master Chief Collection brought over ODST and Reach, which aren't Master Chief games. I wondered if they would bring over Solo and Rogue One, even though they're not part of the Skywalker saga. I imagine they'll I believe probably... that is what they're doing. Okay, they'll they'll probably do that as DLC. That would be my uh, guess. Or if not, there'll be like maybe like one or two mission, like side missions mm. that'll be like for Solo or for Rogue One. But okay. they already said we're doing Bad Batch, we're doing Clone Wars, we're doing Mando, and so I am already excited for those things. So they've got some they've got some post launch support mapped out for probably the rest of twenty twenty two. Yeah, Lego, Lego usually does. Okay. They do have a couple of DLCs that they'll release throughout. They'll have uh, some like character packs of just being like, "Hey, here's more characters," and then they'll have actual like levels. Yeah. So I remember with Lego Marvel Superheroes two, they had one for Ammon and the Wasp, one for Runaways, one for Agents of Shield, one for Avengers Infinity War, and I think that was it. And so those were like the four big level DLCs. And then he had other characters come in throughout as well. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it much more than I than I was. I was like, yeah, it'll be good and I'll play it at some point. But now I think it's getting close to a must buy for me. 
and on a on a financial level i appreciate that it's not in the fall of this year where i'm buying a ton of games <laughs> this is going to be no but it is in spring yeah which go which going back to spring we got another game announcement today at gamescom marvel midnight no midnight suns that's the name of the game okay have you heard of this i saw something about it very briefly today and it looked like nothing that i want to play Ooh, interesting so midnight suns the comic itself is much more mystical dark arts based it's a lot more of ghost rider blade doctor strange mephisto that sort of uh storyline and stuff this game and i want to get your opinion on this this is xcom meets marvel I've never played XCOM. I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. Okay. So XCOM is a strategy turn-based game. Yes. I know a little bit about it. Yeah. You're controlling a group of characters and stuff. You make your turns. The opponents make their turns. Damages, fail states, all that kind of stuff. I am very excited for this because uh, XCOM, it's a great strategy game. It really just makes you think a lot of stuff. And I really like planning a couple of steps ahead. I've done it so many times where I'm like, well, I'm trapped because if I make this move, then I move five. This person's going to do that. It's like playing a game of chess, but much more, I don't want to say like tailored towards me, but it's much more my speed of video games where I can actually visualize a whole lot of stuff. And it's a lot easier than chess, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm not always the biggest turn-based game fan. I like the Paper Mario games, the two that I played. I played the original and I played Origami King particularly the original which is like a straight up rpg i like i like the turn-based combat in that but other than that like pokemon i think is fine even though that i think that style of, of gameplay is kind of outdated at this point other than that i don't really enjoy turn-based games i feel like i'm trapped in this situation i want to get out and i want to keep moving and the game is stopping me that's never been something i've enjoyed and i also this might be a hot take i don't really like gameplay in most superhero games i've never other than uh, the Arkham games, I don't feel like it's ever really worked for me, combat in a superhero game. I can understand that, and I can understand you not liking like turn-based games, because that's been a very common complaint today, is people being like, oh, this is turn-based? Why do I want to do turn-based when I can just like go in an open field and do all this stuff? That being said, I think this looks really cool. We haven't gotten any gameplay yet. That's going to be September 1st, so next Wednesday. I mean, this was leaked months ago. It was supposed to show at E3. Well, it wasn't supposed to show at E3, but it came out when they were saying, oh, Wonderlands, which is the Borderlands spinoff, that's going to be announced, and so is this game. But this game, I really love the feel of it. I like a lot of the characters that they've chosen. It's way more mystical, kind of that Diablo feel, where it's magical but dark, and I'm really excited to see what this game ends up playing like. They did a developer interview where people were very confused because they were saying like, oh no, you play as this new character that we created that you will like make yourself and all that stuff. But going through the developer interview, they did say, no, you will play as the heroes. There are different costumes and different sets that you'll get that'll give you different abilities that you can change and sort of morph with your character and stuff. And I'm like, all right, cool. So that's really good. But I am really excited for that. I understand why you wouldn't be or why a lot of people wouldn't be but for me it's very exciting but that is march 2022 spring is looking to be very stacked it, it's looking busy this fall's looking busy too like i said i've got the trailer pulled up here uh i realize now why you said XCOM because 2k is making this game i didn't know that and that yeah it's for access it's the same company that makes XCOM is yep. making this game and 2k is the publisher 
yeah, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't look like it's totally for me. Which is fine. I saw one tweet about it. I saw like a list of bullet points of what the game was. I don't remember any of it off the top of my head now. But I was I, I very much got the vibe that it was not going to be my thing. Which is completely fine. Not every game's for everyone. But other than Gamescom, which was today and yesterday, but Xbox didn't really show off a whole lot. Um, I've been playing God of War 2018 again. Okay. I went back. I don't. I know you don't have a PlayStation, so it kind of you don't really have a whole lot to contribute. But I went back and I started playing God of War 2018 because I had finished the story. I really liked the story. It was really good. But I was like, all right, I want to just go hack and slash while sitting on my couch. And it's just so good. I don't know what it is that they just do with simple vibrations in your controller that just make you feel so powerful. It's the wind up and the sound design with the way that you just hit your enemies. It's brutal. It is so good. Yeah, it won game of the year in 2018, didn't it? It did win game of the year 2018 because 18. 19 was Red Dead, right? No, no, 19, ni- 19 was Sekiro. 19 was Sekiro. Then 20 was Last, Last of Us. Yeah, yeah, Red Dead was against God of War in 2018. Oh, yeah, that's what it was, because it was the underdog. Everyone was like, all right, give it to Red Dead and then God of War won. That's right. My bad. I mean, I was like, give it give it to Red Dead. I fucking love Red Dead, too. Anyways, God of War, it's just so good. I really love the way they integrate boy into that game. Is he, that the name of his son? His son's name is Atreus, which if we want to get into spoilers, I can give you a little spoiler as to where the next game is heading, because I don't know if you're going to end up playing it or not. I'll probably play it eventually, but I'll forget what you tell me, so go ahead. Okay, so spoilers for God of War 2018. I'm spoiling it right now. Don't be mad at me that I told you this. This is what's happening. You've been warned. Okay, so uh, in God of War 2018, we're in the Norse world, right? Oh, yep, I I know what you're talking about. Yes, so Kratos killed all the gods in the Greek, and now he left that. He went to Norse. He married a woman. The son is actually Loki. Oh. So his son is Loki, and Kratos is going to be the person that brings on Ragnarok, which is the end of Asgard in the Norse realms and all that other stuff, which is why God of War 2 is subtitled right now God of War Ragnarok. Yep, I remember all this now. That ending, when you get through the end, because the whole goal is to get your mother's ashes to this specific place. So you get the ashes there, and you go into this building, and there's murals upon murals of showing your adventure throughout. And they're saying, like, oh, these are, like, our our journey as we've gone through. But Kratos pulls something behind, and it shows Ragnarok and the end of everything. And I forgot, like, what the specific image was, whether it was kratos holding atreus or loki or like kratos dead but it foreshadows that for that second game and i am so excited to see where they take this direction it is going to be really interesting is that one also slated for next year that is slated for next year it was it it said summer 2021 but we all knew nah that's not happening yeah (laughs) so it got delayed to next year we haven't seen any gameplay all we know is that we saw a logo. It was the Metroid 4, Metroid Prime 4 syndrome. Uh, it was Elder Scrolls 6 syndrome where all we saw was a logo. Yeah, I, I always love when I know I know a game is going to not come, not meet the release year when all they give you for the release year is just the year. You said they gave you the season, but like 
when whenever a Breath of the Wild game comes out and it gives you like 20, 2015 for the first Breath of the Wild, you're like, you know, it's not making 2015. It's not going to be here for another two years after that. I always love when they do that because it's obviously so early in development and they almost always take more time. Almost always. Yeah, it's just I'm very excited for it, to say the least. But I have been playing my PlayStation a lot more because it's easier for me to not be holed up in my room and go to a couch and play and you know, I have my Xbox. I've had my Xbox for years, so I want to spend time with my PlayStation now. No, I get it. I'm I'm hoping I can get a PlayStation, at least a PS4, and I want to get a PS5 soon. I actually, I went to Vintage Stock the other day, like I said, uh, which is, I think it's just, it might be just a regional thing, but it's like used games, used movies. Place. Yeah, here in Arizona, we call it Bookman's. Yes, you mentioned that the other day. Um, they had a PS5 behind the counter, in the box and everything, and I'm like... I got paid. I got paid recently. I've got some money to burn. Let me see what it costs. And I looked up. Do you want to guess the price tag of the PS5 they had for sale there? 600 bucks. 750. Mm, no, don't do it. Yeah, I did not do it. I was like, if it if it was regular, like, what was it? 499? That's the standard MSRP. If it was that, I might have considered it briefly. But I understand in their situation, they've got to sell it above market value because it's kind of a hot commodity for them to even have one. I think they had two. They probably had one of them was the the one without the disk drive. I'll be I'll be lucky if I can get one this year or next year, I think. Yeah. Ooh, I, I said that I had an interesting story about uh, moving up here. So, yeah, I mean, I'm a gamer, you know, I like my games. Mm-hmm. Um, So the way that I usually pack is I pack maybe like one or two layers of clothes. Then I put my PlayStation and Xbox in there, pack the rest of the layers. I have a separate bag for cables and controllers and headsets and all that other stuff. And then I have my computer with me. So I had unpacked everything pretty much already by the time that my roommate had come in. So he comes in, he looks at the PlayStation in the living room. He's like, okay. Then he looks in my room, he sees my Xbox. He's like, is that an Xbox? I'm like, yeah, it's an Xbox. And then he sees my computer. He's like, oh, you brought your PC. Okay, I thought I was going to be ill. I'm like, no, nah, 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 of course I got my PC. Then the next day, I'm playing on my Switch on my bed. He's like, is that a Switch? I'm like, uh-huh. He's like, dang, you brought more for gaming than you did of actual clothes. I'm like, I brought everything I needed. I know exactly what I need. I was the same way. By by my senior year, junior year, I, was, I started collecting consoles. By my senior year of college, I had an Xbox One. I had a Switch. I had a Wii U. And I had a Wii which I, I also had GameCube games for because I had the GameCube backwards compatibility. I had a little bit of everything by the, by my senior year, and it was everything I needed, even if I didn't use all of it too much. Yeah, no, I, I'm the same way. My, my Wii, Wii U collected some dust my senior year. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. I like having different... I like... Because I just like playing games. And I like playing games I, on different I do consoles. Too. Kill me for it. I'll get the sudden urge to play something random, and I want that... I want everything I have to be on hand for that moment. Because I hate not being able to do something I want to do in the moment, be for whatever reason. Exactly. So even if even if it's more stuff that I need to bring with me, I like having something available for me to play. Before we get off the topic of games, I have a little game for us to play. Oh. It is. Explain a game plot badly. So in front of me, I have 11 game plots that I'm going to explain to you. And you'll have three guesses to try to get them. I like to think these are pretty easy ones. Okay. But you let me know. Okay. Uh, before we recorded, Manuel told me you said there were three that you're confident I will not get. There's two that I'm confident you won't get. The third one, I think you will get, but I'm just I'm just letting you know that now. 
All right, so we'll start off with the first one. Some guy with trauma fights a clown in a hospital slash prison place. Arkham Asylum? That is indeed Batman Arkham Asylum. Ooh, 2009. Let me see if I can get the release dates for these two. All right, this one I don't think you're going to get. A group of pest exterminators do their job while also murdering people based on their religion. Hmm. Far Cry? No, that's guess number one. I knew one of the Far Cries was about a cult. I thought that might have been it. That's Far Cry 5. Yep. Um, say it again. A group of pest exterminators do their job while also murdering people based on their religion. I'm going to say Grand Theft Auto 5 because he dressed up as a pest exterminator in one of the heists. Nope, that's guess number two. Um... I will go one of the Resident Evil games. Ooh, that's guess number three. The answer is uh, Warhammer Vermintide. Have you ever played these games? Nope. <laughs> they are left for dead in medieval times, but the zombies are rats. Huh. Never going to play that. They're, uh, they're really fun games. Uh, you know where you can play that? Xbox Game Pass. Phil. Slide in the DMs, Phil. Let's talk. All right. Number t- number three. Yeah, I'm one for two. A drug addicted man crashes on top of a war torn city and starts hunting girls so he can get his next fix. Ooh, I don't even know. I'll say it again. A drug addict crashes on top of a war torn city and starts hunting girls so he can get his next fix. My guess is that the drug addict is kind of a joke, but I don't even know where to take that. Can you do a hint at all? It's a popular franchise that hasn't seen a new game in a while. Um, I have no idea. I don't even know what to guess. The story takes from Anne Rand's Atlas Shrugged. That does not help me. I'm, I'm going to call it on this one. I give up. The answer is Bioshock. Never played Bioshock. You've I, never played Bioshock? Ooh, I thought you... Never played any of them. I don't really know anything about it. I thought you were going to get that one. No. Ooh, Bioshock. No, Bioshock's great. I'm sure it is. I just never played any of them. Easy, easy purchase. If it's ever on a sale, I recommend buying that Bioshock collection. Yeah, I've almost gotten it on the Switch a couple times, but I think I should just get it on Xbox. Oh, no, don't get it on the <laughs> Switch. You have a Series X. I do. Yeah, there's no excuse to get anything on the Switch at this point that's, that's playable on Xbox. Here's a good one. Demons are having a really bad time after they killed someone's pet bunny. Um... This is harder than I thought it would be. I don't know. Are you sure? I'll repeat it again. Go ahead. Demons are having a really bad time after they killed someone's pet bunny. Pet bunny? Can you give me a hint? This franchise was reinvigorated in 2016. 2016. Doom? Which one? Uh, oh. Doom 2016? No. <sighs> It was before 2016. Okay. Let's go Doom 3. Ooh, so close. Doom 2. I had I had one more guess. I would have said Doom 2. Yeah, it was it was a uh, it was Doom 2. Okay. Yeah, I don't know anything. I've, I pl- I played all of Doom 2016. I played a little bit of Eternal. That's all I knew. Gotcha. All right, here we go. Former President JFK and friends fight zombies and a dude who steals his guns. Call of Duty Black Ops. What's the map? Five. Yes. I wasn't even going to let you finish on that one. All right, here we go. This is two words. Cough, cough. Um, Red Dead Redemption 2. Yes, that's the answer. 
<laughs> that was uh, one that I didn't know if you were going to get because I don't remember if you had actually played Red Dead 2, but that's what it was. Pour one out for my boy. Pour one out, exactly. All right, here we go. Person gets shot and builds, in a, and builds a hotel in response. Oh, Fortnite. Yes, that is indeed the correct answer. There we go. That was my first thought, and then hotel kind of threw me off a little bit. Two people try to brutally kill each other. Two people try and brutally kill each other? Uh-huh. Um, Mortal Kombat. That is indeed correct. That's not even that's not even like a bad explanation. That I is, know, it explains it pretty well. That is literally the premise. Uh this one is three words. Okay. Chicken kicking sim. Chicken kicking sim. Uh Ocarina of Time. No. Mm. I'll give you a hint. This was a popular RPG in the early and mid two thousands. Early and mid two thousands. Chicken kicking sim? Oblivion? No. Morrowind? No. The answer was Fable. Oh, okay. The w- the way you said no to Oblivion made me think I was on the right track with Elder Scrolls. No, it was it was Fable. Yeah, I played I played like half of Fable, I think. Yeah, so that's another game that is coming back. Yep. Alright. Uh two more. Okay. This is this one simply says Anakin disliked this game. Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. That is indeed correct. Congratulations. <laughs> and here's the last one that I don't think you're going to get, but I'll give it to you if you can name the franchise. Okay. Aladdin, but the genie has relationship issues and there are multicolored circles. Um, Luigi's Mansion. Nope. Okay. I will take the hint now. How can I say this without giving it away? Mm, popular popular franchise that has a tv show game franchise that has a tv show resident evil no it does have a show uh the most famous tv show had its main character voiced by jaleel white that does nothing for me um urkel yeah i know who he is that doesn't still um i give up the answer was Sonic and the Secret Rings. Okay, so say the the explanation again. Aladdin, but the genie has relationship issues and there are multicolored circles. Okay, that doesn't that doesn't hint at Sonic to me, at least not the basic premise of Sonic, but But that's the thing. These were the Sonic games where he was interacting with humans and getting freaky. Okay. <laughs> Which I didn't I didn't think you would get. I knew that immediately, but I thought Aladdin uh, but the genie has relationship issues. I thought you maybe knew about that whole like, oh, Sonic and humans thing. But I was wrong. There you go. I didn't do so hot. There were some funny ones in there, though. There were. I, I like cough, cough. I, I cough, cough. I knew it immediately. <laughs> I felt so bad. The JFK one was also a dead giveaway. Mm-hmm. If you played like Call of Duty around that time, you knew exactly what it was. Yeah, it was it was huge. Yeah, the, the comment under that post actually just said five, and they're like, we need the actual game. It's like, fine, <laughs> Call of Duty Black Ops You zombies. You were too specific. Exactly. So, Nick, have you been watching some stuff? I have been watching some stuff. Give me just a second. I'm going to pull up the letterbox, as I do. Oh, yes, the letterbox. I have to go update mine on something that I just watched earlier. Have you been seeing mine at all? I saw some of it. Okay, so... If you, if you saw one of them, I'm definitely going to save that one for last. You probably know which one. So in the last week, I watched Network for the first time. Have you seen that? Nope. 
that's a big people in the film industry love this movie kind of movie. It is good, but it's the most screen written movie I've ever seen for all the good and all the bad that that entails. So it's a lot of actors being big and telling you exactly what the writers and, and the director want you to hear. They're conveying everything that they want to convey in very blunt terms, and they're using the characters to do it in that sense. And they're not characters. They're just vessels to tell you what the theme is that they want to convey. And it's not that it's bad. It's just too much of that for me. But it's considered a classic. I learned a lot about it in my screenwriting class, which we'll talk about later when we talk about film school in a bit. It's good. I'm going to watch it again down the line, but I really wanted to love it and it didn't get there for me. Next up, we have John Carpenter's They Live. Have you seen this? No, I'm not a big horror person in general. I know the basic premise of They Live, but that's pretty much it. They Live is not a horror movie, pretty much at all. What is that? Isn't that like a body swap movie? No, I'm not sure what you're thinking of. What am I thinking of? They Live is a movie starring uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, the wrestler. Uh, this was during mm -hmm. his first retirement back in the 80s. He went to do some acting. And it's got a lot of social commentary. The basic premise, and I, I'll say, uh, because I'm probably going to... Oh, looking at the poster, I know which one it is now. Can I say what it is, essentially? Yes. That it's like Free Guy, but with zombies? Uh, Yeah, I guess that's what Free Guy is. No, it's not zombies. It's actually, I think it's technically aliens. I don't think it ever says outright what they are like. They're they're total. So I guess I'll explain the premise briefly. Roddy Piper finds this pair of glasses in a church and he puts them on and he can see bluntly the subliminal messaging that the world conveys to try and get people to think what they want you to think. So he'll say he'll see things like conform and consume because that's what the corporations want you to do when he's wearing these glasses. When the glasses are off, he sees everything as everyone else sees it. And he sort of gets manipulated in the same way that humans would get ma manipulated. But when he has the glasses on, he can see everything as it truly is. And for the people, for the aliens that are among us in the world, they look like humans normally if you don't have the glasses on. But if you have the glasses on, their faces are melted away, peeled away, whatever. And they look, I say they do look like zombies, but I think they're officially they're aliens. But I thought the movie was okay. It was another one that I've been really looking forward to watching. Uh, it was It's pretty short, which is always nice. Roddy Piper's really good in it. Keith David is kind of his sidekick in that movie, and I always love Keith David. He's he's really good in it. They have a fight scene with each other at one point, and it's like it's a solid five to ten minutes of just them fighting each other in an alley, and it's not exciting at all. But it's funny how long that scene drags with no no real purpose. I I'm sure there is there's more to the scene than what it comes across as, but it just feels like a, a weird a weird moment that drags in the movie. But that's what I'm going to remember most about it. I don't think it's anything too special, but it's fun and it's a good way to kill 90 minutes. And it's I, I, I'm fascinated looking back at John Carpenter's filmography just because I don't always love his his stuff. I, I think I've seen Halloween, the first Halloween and The Thing. I think they're both really good, but I don't love them to that extra degree that a lot of people do. But I really respect him as a filmmaker and I think They Live is pretty solid. Gotcha. L looking at your next film, I, I think we'll have a lot to talk about. Yes, let's talk about Bill and Ted Face the Music. Let's. What do you think about it? So uh, to start off, I'll give my brief history with Bill and Ted. Go ahead. Um, back in middle school, the last day of class for anyone that was in middle school, because I went through a K through eight school, whatever, we would go watch an old movie. And the reason why we'd go watch an old movie is because of the rating system back then. So we would get away with a lot of things that are PG, but really shouldn't have been. 
Um, <laughs> I believe my the first year was Superman, second year was Bill and Ted, and then the third year was Willow. So, second year, we go and watch Bill and Ted. And, okay. uh, my excellent teacher, adventure the first one yes excellent adventure my teacher okay. my like favorite teacher to this day he he would give announcements saying like all right guys here's the thing the movie is very dumb you're gonna get annoyed with bill and ted very early into the film because <laughs> they tap because they sound like surfer bros and all they talk is like dude and whoa i absolutely love bill and ted uh excellent adventure i think it's just so warm and joyful uh kind of like what we talked about with ted lasso like of it just being a joyful movie i get that with both of the with both of the original films i think bill and ted are just so good together they're like they're like jay and silent bob where of course they would be best friends they're just so perfect and i think that movie does such a good job of working with a time travel concept being completely messy with it but just not caring because the story that they're trying to tell and it's so warm and joyful and good and stupid and i think it has a lot of good jokes to this there's one joke that is not aged well if you remember the joke then you know why other than that i think it's a great film uh bogus journey is a lot more I don't want to say dark, but it's way more weird with its concepts and stuff. Because in this one, you go that they get killed and you're trying to get out of the underworld. But with that, I think they add in a lot of good characters. I think Death, right? It was Death that is just a fun character to hang out with these two. And that leads into Bill and Ted 3, where it's just such a nice return. It's not a great film, but it's just fun. You're going through a lot of the same motions as Bill and Ted 1. But I think what it does really nice is that it just, it lets Keanu and it lets Alex Winter just have fun going through different timelines and seeing themselves as they grow older and coming to the realization that they do by the end of the film. And I just really like that. There's a cameo that I was very happy to see in there. And it was a great little, it was a great little sequence. And <laughs> uh, I, I want to see him in more things because it's always good. He was also Satan in Tenacious D in The Pick of Destiny. Yes. But I'm very keen on all three of the films. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't seen any of them until this year. I watched the first two a couple months ago. Uh, I like the first one a lot. I think it's obviously dumb. But the key to that movie working is that, and all of them, I would say, is that it's totally aware of how dumb it is. And in that sense, it's a, I think it's the tightest movie of them all. Everything pretty much, for, for the most part, you know, there's a couple jokes that don't work, like you said. But everything works in that movie, I think, way better than uh, the parts come together in uh, the second and third movie. I really like the first one. Uh, Bogus Journey is okay. It's got some stuff I like. I like the inclusion of death. I like the the evil Bill and Ted's that, that kill the original Bill and Ted. I like that stuff. I think this, if I remember right, the sequence where they actually get out of hell drags on for a long time in the second movie, but I think it's okay. You can tell that it's a bit, a bit higher budget and that it's just not, doesn't have the same level of creativity that the first movie does, but it's okay. Face the music. I just watched this past week. I wasn't feeling it for most of the movie. I'm going to be honest. It was kind of rocky for me for the first hour, I'd say, but it really comes together in that last half hour or so, and I like where it ends up. I saw a lot of stuff when, when it came out in like September of last year. A lot of, this is the movie we need right now, which that's a that's a comment about stuff that always makes me roll my eyes a little bit. 
I get it in the sense that it was 2020 was a bad year for people and it was nice to see like a well-made silly movie because we don't get a lot of like mid-budget comedies anymore certainly not ones that are that dumb and it's almost feels like a throwback in that way the stuff that they go for in face the music works for the most part I, I didn't feel the same level of chemistry between Keanu and Alex Winter in this one for whatever reason like the pacing of the dialogue was off like throughout the entire movie particularly in their scenes i don't know if it was a direction thing i don't know if it was one of their performances i could just feel that something was off about it in in the scenes where they interacted with each other which is obviously the bulk of the movie and some scenes that were fine and i think it got better as the movie went on like it's nothing special to me but i i had an enjoyable enough time watching it uh my power went out in the last 20 minutes of the movie so that kind of sucked i had to finish it on my phone which was not the optimal way to watch it but the ending i really like where they went with it I, I like the overall message at the end. I appreciate what they were going for there. And it does just kind of wrap up, though, like immediately after it gets to that point. I wish it would have had a bit more time to breathe. But otherwise, I think it's totally fine. I don't have any strong feelings about it, really. But yeah, it was OK. Yeah, I, I mean, I I had rented it because I just really love Bill and Ted. And I think I got my money's worth. I think there's a really great sequence when they go to like the oldest selves that they have I yes. really, really like that sequence. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, the other thing of it is like, it's just fun. In my opinion, it's just fun seeing them go through different costumes and versions of themselves throughout the years. It's stupid. It doesn't always work. But I mean, they were clearly having fun. And when you talk about like them, their comedic timing being off with that, I think what it is, is that we know Keanu isn't a great actor. But at that time, when he did Bill and Ted 1 and 2, he was just so locked in. But for the last 20 years or so, he's been this dark brooding force and stuff, like with Neo or John Wick and stuff. And so it's, it, I'm sure that it took him a lot longer to get back into that Ted uh, mode than it took Alex Winter, in my opinion. No disrespect to Alex Winter, but it feels like that has been Alex Winter. Like that that role is Alex Winter, his career defined. That's his role. Keanu has like three others that people will probably think of before Bill and Ted. But that's Alex Winter. And he's like, I'm sure he was thinking for the last 30 years about doing another one. And he never lost that character in the same way that Keanu did. Yeah, I don't I don't think Keanu stands out as a weak link or anything. It's just whether it's the directing, the editing, whatever. It just feels like the pacing of the of the dialogue is a little off, but it didn't like ruin the movie for me or anything. Sure. Yeah. Uh, quick question. Did you ever watch Ben 10 as a kid? No. Okay. But you know what Ben 10 is, right? I've heard of it. I know nothing about it. All right. So Ben 10, it's this TV show about this, uh, this kid who finds an alien watch and he's able to turn into aliens to stop other aliens that are bad and stuff. Right. Okay. They made two live action films. And can you guess who directed them? Alex Winter. Alex Winter. Okay. He directed two straight-to-TV Ben 10 movies that I didn't realize as a kid. I'm like, I don't know who this person is. But now that I know that about him, I'm like, oh, okay. So that's what he was doing when he wasn't being Bill. All right, what else he got? So moving on to the next thing that I saw. Actually, I'll go to the one I saw after this because this this one is so important to, to cover that we're going to do it last. So a couple nights ago in another hotel for work, I watched another Ghibli movie. I had seen a couple of those uh, a few months ago. I watched My Neighbor Totoro. Have you seen it? What kind of question is that? Have I seen it? 
I've seen okay. a lot of okay. I've seen more Ghibli films than I have Scorsese or Tarantino combined. Okay. Good uh, for you. It's, it's just I, I've seen <laughs> I've seen a lot of Ghibli films. I've seen most of them. Okay. What do you think about it? Oh, I love Totoro. I love Ghibli films in general. My favorite is probably Ponyo. I just have a lot of good memories with that one, which I'm sure you'll get to eventually. But mm-hmm. My Neighbor Totoro is so good. The cat bus, like we talk about like this feeling of being warm and stuff. And that's sort of the same feeling that I get with the cat, with uh, Totoro and the whole cat bus sequence. He's just a giant lovable friend that you can have. And there's I like there's classic just images of the cat bus or him smiling with the umbrella and the little girl. I think that film is such a I don't want to say like a landmark film or something like that, but it's just a film that has stuck with a lot of people for a lot of good reasons. It is such an enjoyable film, as most goodly films are. The animation is still good to this day. I think a lot of the voice acting and even some of the dubbing is pretty good. Uh, I don't know if you watched it subbed or dubbed. I've watched everything subbed so far. But yeah, generally, a lot of Ghibli films, they're good either way that you watch them. But okay. I do think this one is just one of the standout ones and for good reason. Yeah, I, I really liked it for the most part. I, I felt that for the first hour or so, there wasn't really any conflict. There was hints of stuff happening I guess not hints. You knew that their mother was in the hospital, and I figured that would come back into play in some capacity by the end, which is what it did. But for the first hour, maybe even hour 10, there wasn't really any conflict going on. It was just a lot of stuff that was just kind of happening. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like it was going anywhere in particular. It was really cute. I think I think Tultura was really charming. I think both of the girls are are fun characters, and I like the interaction between everybody. It's just a lot of really nice stuff for the most part. And I like that. And then I was feeling it was kind of aimless. And then when it picks up at the end and stuff gets more serious, I think the fact that it was so warm and nice for the first hour ended up making the serious moments at the end more serious. And I think it made it, I think the movie was better off because of that. Cause you get these moments where all of a sudden they have to take things seriously. And one of the girls is ill-equipped to handle it because she's so young and one of the other girls ha- has to be strong. She's the older sister. She has to be strong. And she she's trying her best, but she can't. I think there's a lot of stuff that it hits on in those last 20 minutes that's really effective. And I think that brings the movie home in, in a stronger way than I thought it might come home in. So I, I really dug it. And I, I like the cat bus. I, I really enjoy the scenes with Totoro, even though he doesn't he doesn't have that many scenes. I was actually surprised how little that character was in the movie. But all those scenes are really memorable. The scene in the rain by the bus stop is probably my favorite. Uh, it's just it's just really sweet, pretty much top to bottom. I like how it ends. It just yeah, just a low key, enjoyable Ghibli movie. Yeah. And compared to the ones that I'd seen before, I'd seen the first one I'd seen was Lupin the Third, which is Miyazaki's first movie, which isn't technically a Ghibli movie. I think that's before the studio was founded. But that one had a lot more moving parts, a lot more going on. Uh, I saw Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, which is kind of dark in a lot of ways and there's there's a lot of conflict there and it's it was really serious and this was a, a contrast to both those movies in that way and that it was it was light it was joyful there was, wasn't much going on but when it got serious it really got serious and i think it worked out great because of that and i'm going in order at least the best i can right now with with ghibli movies because i hadn't seen any of them so i just started from the beginning i'm gonna keep going with that and i'll report back here the last one that i watched this is a big one do you want to tell him what I watched? You watched Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. I watched our namesake the other night. 
it was a big moment. So yeah, when when I came up with the name for this show a few weeks ago, I had not seen the movie that I was naming it after. I just thought it was a fun play on words because we had the same amount of syllables to work with. And I had no idea what the movie, well, I knew what the movie was, but I didn't know what its reputation was. I felt like it had been kind of forgotten. Have you seen it? I have seen pretty much all of it. I've seen most of it like out of, like not in one continuous going, but I'm pretty sure I've seen all of it. Okay. I, I know the premise. Okay. I know enough of it. Yeah, I didn't, I, I had my ideas of what I thought it would be. And even seeing the premise on, I think Prime Video is where I watched it. The premise in the description isn't totally what the movie's about. Uh, the premise in the description makes it seem that it's about Michael Sarah and Kat Dennings going to this concert, which is the background, I would say, the the backdrop of everything that's happening. The movie isn't really about music, which I thought it was going to be. It's not really that. It's just sort of the thing that brings them together, and then everything else that happens between them is different. It's not necessarily related to music. That's just the inciting incident, I guess, that brings them together. But I think their chemistry is really sweet. Michael Sarah's ex mostly works. I think his friends are all really nice characters. And it's nice to see them just trying to bring Michael Sarah and Kat Dangs together because they know they're perfect for each other. I think it's really sweet. Uh, I don't love Kat Dang's best friend character, who's just a drunkie in the background that keeps causing problems for them. I understand the necessity of that character to keep putting obstacles in the way of them so they can keep the movie going. But I just I don't love the way they portrayed that character. And it, there was a lot of scenes of that character that kind of brought the movie down a little bit. But it's it's a totally solid, nice little really little movie and i think it's really sweet and now i can say that i've watched our namesake you have indeed watched our namesake i was gonna ask you like what did you think of kat dennings because the internet is not the biggest fan of her i don't like super mind her in most things but what do you think about her portrayal i think she's great in that movie in particular i i don't think her marvel character is her fault at all i think that's just at least in the thor movies i haven't seen wandavision but in the Thor movies, that's a really poorly written character. I think she's better than that material would suggest. And I think she gets to show that a little bit in this movie. And it's just funny to me because I hadn't seen any of his movies from that period. There was like a three or four year period where Michael Sarah was like a leading man in movies. It was that Scott Pilgrim. Year one, if you want to count year that. Year one. I, I don't, super bad, kind of. Yeah, I was going to say super bad. Do we count it? But yeah your one is the same situation he's kind of the secondary character but like he had a run there and yeah, he still he does stuff every now and then but like i don't know i felt like he he gets a little underappreciated because that was a good run that he had he did have a good run i think michael Sarah is i mean from interviews and stuff he seems content with where he is he yeah. seems to be doing a lot of what he wants to be doing whether it's music or picking the specific roles that he does but i mean i've always liked michael Sarah. Oh, I love I Michael Sarah. I know that he went from like Arrested Development to Super Bad. Well, from mm -hmm. other things as well, but like he went from Arrested Development to Super Bad to this whole spree that he went on. Then he has like slowed down. He showed up in a couple of other things. He was the voice of Robin in the Lego Batman movie. Yes, That's all right. my things have to lead to Lego somehow. <laughs> all roads lead <laughs> to Lego. Just like all roads it lead to Avatar for me. Exactly. But no, I, I do enjoy Michael Sarah and I think it's a great, I think it's a fun film. It's one yeah. of those things where that film and Person Being a Wallflower came out at the same year and they both make me happy, but for different reasons. So I regret to inform you that those movies came out four years apart. Listen, it's the same year for me, okay? <laughs> Whether you're a freshman or a senior exiting high school in that amount of time, it's the same time frame, okay? Okay. 
but you got what like like there was like it wasn't even just like oh it was the same time like from super bad all the way through like the mid-2010s all of those comedies were the same like they were yeah. all the judd apatow comedies and stuff. that crew was everywhere for a solid five years and a lot of them were with each other and there are some cameos in nick and nora that are from that crew like kevin corrigan's in there for a scene andy sandberg's in there he's not part of that crew necessarily but he's he has a cameo in there there's someone else oh jay baruchel's like a, a major character in the movie i do love jay baruchel yeah but he's like there that, but like there was that whole aesthetic of comedies or yes. like teen films at that time and i feel like that film does stand out but not enough like i feel like that film in juno kind of hold that place of forgotten teen films that have something special about them yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't quite say that Nick Nora is, is special, but I really liked it. It's really sweet. Those two have great chemistry throughout the movie. And if you haven't seen it, I, it's on Prime Video as of this recording. So I would definitely say go 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 give it a watch. It's really short and it's I think it's definitely worth your time. Give it a whirl, everyone. Yes, um, give it a whirl. I watched a couple movies as well. Okay. I watched Blade Runner, the final cut. Had you ever seen this before? I had not. Oh, so had you we... seen any version of it before? I had not. I I know. Okay. I know. I had known the premise of Blade Runner. I had known a lot of the big stuff about Blade Runner, and the thing that I knew going into it, the movie is very slow. It is yes. a slow burn film. That being said, the movie's incredible. I think. Oh, visually... I'm so glad you like it. Oh, of course. Yeah. No, it's good. Listen. My my one thing is that I acknowledge it is a slow movie, but for everything that it does, it does it so well. Like, I didn't love the whole text at the beginning of the film, but I understand that they needed it to, A, get rid of that voiceover, but B, to sort of mm -hmm. get you into the story as quick as possible. But I think visually yep. and aesthetically, it is so good. There's a scene where Harrison Ford goes at, very early in the film where he goes to talk to uh well tyrell tyrell corporation tyrell. and you yep. see that wide shot of the table the background and then him and the um uh, rachel is that her name whatever her name is yes yes and you yep. see that wide shot oh my god it's so beautiful and i think it's aged pretty well for the most part it's not perfect of course not but i think it's aged really well and i think that leads into later in 2049 which i didn't get to watch because i was busy but looking at that visual style i feel like what they did with 2049 is they took what it wanted to be i guess like what blade runner wanted to be and they executed it on a much bigger scale the same thing with like tron to tron legacy they took what it wanted to be and then actualized it and i think they kept a lot of what was the most important to the feel of both films whether it's Blade Runner or Tron and then just modernized it in a perfect way I know that you think 2049 is a is like a worse film than Blade Runner but I mean aesthetically I think they're both just gorgeous looking films I think the performance from Harrison Ford is incredible I think the little hints that they drop there was one hint uh where one of the people just keeps making sheep out of the like gum or the paper and stuff and I'm like ah that's really cool yeah, it was the origami. Yeah, it was the origami sheep because, you know, the book, Do Robots Dream of Electric Sheep and so on and so forth. It's a it's a great film. I'm I'm so glad you loved it because I have loved the first Blade Runner for years and years and years now. 
I saw it first in high school and I liked it then. That was my high school film class junior year, so 2014, 2015. I liked it. It was the final cut. That's the only version I've ever seen. I've seen like out of context. I've seen the voiceover scenes from the original movie and stuff like that. Uh, but every time I watch the every time I've seen the final cut, probably five or six times now, it grows on me more and more every time. I wrote like three or four papers in college about different aspects of Blade Runner, just because that was something I knew there was a lot that I could sink my teeth into that I could write about. There's a lot in the movie and a lot that's been discussed about the movie that you can you can bring to a paper or something in that in that environment. It looks gorgeous. Like you said, the whole aesthetic is just one of my favorite just one of my favorite aesthetics of any movie ever is is Los Angeles in, in the first Blade Runner. I think Harrison Ford's great. I don't I've never thought of it as like his defining role. I've heard some people say, well, it's not his defining role, but like some people say it's his best performance. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I like that character a lot. There's weird little moments that he has, like when the scene where he's talking to the dancer and he suddenly starts doing like a Scottish accent or no, 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 sorry. That's Indiana Jones. He does the Scottish accent. He does the weird like weaselly accent trying to talk to her and it's just an odd little acting choice and it just like it's only one scene that he does it but it's just an interesting route to take that character in and i love i love that character i love tyrell i love rutger hauer in that movie as roy batty i think that's a great villain who's not totally a villain you totally understand his motives and i think he pays off really strongly in the end i just i love so much about that movie it's just it feels like a movie that was made for me in in every way pretty much the only thing i f i don't like about that movie is i don't feel the relationship between uh deckard and rachel that strongly you'll you'll see how it pays off in 2049 but i don't feel a deep love connection between them that i think i think they want you to feel i've never felt that and there's a couple scenes that between them that really don't age well no oh yeah completely understandable outside of blade runner i have been this is going to sound really weird, but I've been watching a lot of YouTube clips of musicals because next week it's the big release in the Heights comes out on Blu-ray. So I've been spending pretty much this entire week just going through musical clips. <laughs> um, Cynthia Revo, you know her, right? I've heard of her. Yeah. Cynthia Revo was in Bad Times at the El Royale. Yes. Okay. I've seen her in that. She was also Harriet in that movie, Harriet. Uh, she's been in a lot of other things, but she's a Broadway actress, and she does she did these performances of songs from the musical and the movie The Last Five Years, which I had seen for the first time earlier this year. It's really it's a really beautiful musical, but it's really sad. The basic premise of it is it follows a relationship of two people over five years and going through the ups and downs of it. But she does these performances of two songs in particular, mm -hmm. which is the first song, Still Hurting, and then the last song, uh, I Can Do Better Than That. And she does these two performances, and she's just incredible. Outside of her acting abilities, I just understand the complete love for her. She's incredible. Put her in more things, please, which is good because they are. If I ever do get a chance to see her, I will go see her because she's just incredible. Mm -hmm. Outside of that... I've been watching clips from, you guessed it, In the Heights. Whoa. Wow, who could have guessed? It's not like it's my, Never saw it's it like coming. It's my favorite movie of the year so far. <laughs> Mitchells versus the Machines. You're a close like second or third. But um, In the Heights, it's I've talked about it at length on various channels. 
I just absolutely love the film. Outside of the film, I've also been watching musical clips and clips from the reunion that I've seen a thousand times before. The music, the performances, all the chemistry, it all just works for me so much. And I mean, for me personally, I just have a lot of pride in that project for what it has done for a lot of people of Latin descent. It's just, it's so good. It's incredible. I can just go on doing the classic Instagram or Twitter reaction of saying like, it's an incredible film, it's jaw-dropping, it's uh, life-changing, life-defining, all those other things. But for me, it just, (laughs) it brings me back to a time when I first found the musical and just sort of finding something that was made for me. A lot of people will say like, oh, it's made for people that aren't of Latin descent and all these other things. But when I look at the story and I look at a lot of the characters, those are, that's my family members. Those are my like people that I've grown up with. Those are people that I go see when I go traveling and all this other stuff. And so it's just a little slice of where I'm from. And for me, it just, it's a good reminder to always have with me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of it. I saw the movie. I've seen the movie a few times. Uh, at vintage stock uh, a recurring bit in this episode one of the vinyls i bought was the soundtrack of the movie it was pretty expensive but luckily i had a bunch of store credit that offset it so i was able to get it for pretty cheap i haven't listened to it yet but i'm probably going to break it out in the next week or so and i i don't want to talk too much about it because we are planning to talk about it a bit more in depth next week yeah next week we're hoping to have a guest on next week to talk about it with us um Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yes, we're probably going to end up doing it on a Wednesday as again because the film comes out on a Tuesday. So we'll see the way that our schedules work. Um, but I'd like to have it, you know, sometime next week with our guest. Yes. And the final thing that I watched, which isn't a whole lot, which will lead us to our final discussion, was I watched I, Tanya for my editing class in college. Oh, Okay, I I remember you saying the other day that you watched it. I didn't know what why you watched it. Yeah, so I'm not the biggest sports fan in general, but I love me a good sports movie. Remember the Titans? Ooh, Rudy. Ooh, The Longest Yard, starring Adam Sandler. Ooh, Benchwarmers. Ooh, ooh. Quality. Oh, you got me with Benchwarmers. I love Benchwarmers back in the day. I actually do enjoy Benchwarmers, but I had never seen Itania. I knew the kind of premise of her being uh in trouble for hurting nancy kerrigan that's pretty much all i had heard of going into the movie but there were a lot of things that i didn't know going in like i didn't know how much it would actually break the fourth wall all the different narrators that were in the film so when it started off i actually was really into the whole oh i'm this person and this was my experience on oh, this person this was my experience the one person that stood out was bobby cannavale why was he in the movie really i don't like no i i I I like bobby cannavale he's great in chef cody watch chef i don't think you're watching this but watch chef (laughs) i like bobby cannavale i really do i don't i i get his purpose but i don't know what if it was like the hair or the beard or like the like i don't want to say like the coloring on his skin but looks like his skin was darker like i don't know what it was but he just like stood out as like oh that's someone playing someone Allison Janney, I was trying to put my like finger on it for a long time. I'm like, I know who this is. Who is it? Who is it? It was Allison Janney. She gave a great performance in that film as Tanya's mother. Oh my God. It was so good. Sebastian Stan, I also didn't know was in the movie. 
knowing him mostly as Bucky, but also knowing him from other things like The Devil All the Time or some of his other films that he's done. It was an interesting role. There was a joke that they bring up earlier where he's like, you know, I was a name for the longest time. You know, if you got kneecapped by this or that, it was called whatever jeffing or whatever his name was is like and i'll never be able to apologize for that mustache and i like how 90 percent of the movie he's in that stupid mustache <laughs> for me is just like a funny detail and then obviously the big star was margot robbie i think she does a good job i think she does a lot of the emotional stuff really well but for the most part i thought her performance was just fine the way that they film the skating there's one sequence i think it's like her first big skate where they follow her from coming onto the rink. You know, they do a little pan around. She gets to the rink. She puts her head down. The camera is down and it's facing up. And then she looks up. The camera goes up and it becomes an overhead shot. I love that shot. And a lot of the figure skating throughout it, it looked incredible. There's there's a oneer in there. And I'm like, how did they do this? It is, it's a greatly, it's a great, edited film i think it's a really well looking film i'm pretty sure it was shot on film but if it's not i mean they did a fantastic job with this movie i've never seen it i have nothing to really say you've never seen it i i missed it the year it came out i wasn't uh that was 2017 i wasn't watching most of the big releases until probably 2019 i couldn't get to the theater often enough just with school that was the same thing with me yeah there was a lot that i missed in 2016 2017 2018 first few years of college i missed a lot uh that one it had like some awards buzz it got mostly i think acting nominations it might have gotten a screenplay nomination i don't know uh pretty sure allison jenny won for best supporting actress which which surprised me at the time because i thought it was going to be that was the year that laurie metcalf was in ladybird that's what i thought they were going with but allison jenny i'm pretty sure ended up winning for i Tonya. if she did it's a it's a well-deserved nomination and win. i think she was the best part of the film her character is so good in that movie i had recognized the voice and i had recognized the eyes but they did makeup on her that just completely transformed her and she was this cold character and i could not wait for her to be on screen more i loved her in this film i don't know if i'm ever gonna watch it i i didn't wasn't too interested in it when it came out if i was in a position to watch everything i would have probably watched it at some point but it feels like as a whole, at least in the collective memory of everybody, it sort of came and went pretty quickly. For sure. I, I just really did. I enjoyed it, but I but yeah, it's going to come and go for me, too. I, I'm talking about it like really high, but I, there were stuff that I really did enjoy about the film, specifically the cinematography and the editing. Let's be clear. You are not actually high right now. You meant you were coming off of a high of watching the movie. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so do we want to move on to our main topic now? You mentioned we have a... Let's move on to our main topic. Yeah, we have a good segue from what you were just talking about, if you want to segue us on over there, buddy. The last week, I have come back to school. I am back in university. I'm back in film school. And so we thought it'd be good for this week to sort of talk about our experiences in film school, some of the classes, and some of uh, what we've learned, or I don't know, like how it's changed us who knows but sort of our experience with film school as a whole yeah uh this was an idea that i had just because we've both this was something that kind of bonded us early on when we were when we were first becoming friends but we didn't talk about it in too great of detail i don't know a lot of what you've been doing at school i don't think you know a ton of what i did at school 
So I thought this was something interesting. It's timely because you're back in school. I've been done for a year and a half now. Uh, so I think it's two interesting perspectives to bring also two different places that we're that we're in. I'm in the Midwest. You're in Arizona. So I, I think this is going to be something fun to talk about. And hopefully if there's anyone listening that's maybe a bit younger than us, has the same passion that we do, considering going to film school potentially, uh, maybe they might get something out of this. That's my hope. Yeah, so I'm back in school. I was originally not going to go to film school because I was like, oh, there's no money in that. So I was going to go to journalism, which has no money in it. Um, but I figured if I do journalism, I'll most likely be able to use some of the skills that I get from being in film class and stuff. So it was originally going to be major in journalism, minor in film. I got in my classes and I was lucky because I had done a year at a community college for my senior year. So I had gotten most of my gen eds out of the way. I had I had gotten a year earlier because I had done my senior year at a community college. So by the time that I got to actual university, it was just doing my gen ed classes. But what I discovered and was not so secret was that I found journalism to be really boring, but I really liked all my film classes. So I decided, all right, screw this. We're film we're switching. We're going film school and then we're doing JLS as a minor. So currently I'm a film student major, creative uh, or a uh, journalism minor with an emphasis in fiction because um, you have to have an emphasis. So my first year, I wasn't doing a whole lot. Uh, well, that's not true. I had done a like cinema because you have two different films. You have creative media and film, which is actual like filmmaking. And then you have cinema courses, which are more like the history and critiques of cinema and the his and all that other stuff. So I had taken a cinema class and then a couple of creative media and film classes. And so what I really found that I enjoyed about it was I just enjoyed a being behind a camera, but b being able to tell my own telling a story in whatever way I found possible. So I was one of the few that was affected by COVID and uh that didn't help being in a film class. I want to say Hold on, let me bring up my uh, transcript real quickly. I want to say it was like an introduction to film, uh, like techniques or class, something like that. So I had done my first edited, first completely shot, edited, color graded, all that stuff. It was a short video essay about Star Wars and what it meant to me, because of course it was, because of course Star Wars has a big effect on me. Um... But I had done that, and then by the time that it was time to do our final, we were back home because of COVID. So I was not happy. I ended up doing a sock puppet uh, film about uh, toilet paper shortages. My class was Introduction to Filmmaking. That's literally what it was called. All right, so it was Introduction to Filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I had that one, and then I had Cinematic Storytelling, which were both a lot of the techniques that were used. I remember... Is cinematic storytelling was much more of listen to the sound, look at the way that this person is using the camera. How is this person affecting this way? And so that was really good as two basic ones. By the time that we got to the fall of 2020, it was pretty much entirely my CMF courses, creative media and film. So I had an introduction to media studies and screenwriting. Screenwriting I liked, but I am nowhere, I'm not proud in what I produced, but I do have stories that I did want to tell 
that I was able to sort of start to actualize in that class. And then media studies was much more of the, oh, let's talk about the male gaze. Let's talk about Freud theory. Let's talk about all these other things that are really boring, in my opinion. I'm much more of a hands-on person. But what really, what I really liked about film school or am liking about film school is um, two classes. One of them was studio production. The other one was uh, a creative media workshop. So starting off with studio production, that was being inside a new studio. So I got to work with uh, specific like lights, specific cameras, microphones, working with boards that will switch graphics and stuff. It was news mostly. I mean, I come from that background. My dad works in the news. So I had already seen some of that stuff when I had shadowed. But the Creative Media Workshop was part of a... A film production group on my campus called UTV and what we do is we actually pick scripts before the next semester and we had picked three and we picked three again for this upcoming semester and so each film has their producer their director their assistant director the director of photography uh, casting directors lighting sound all these other things we're actually making the short films on campus for credit and it's just it was one of those experiences where I was able to first be on set to see what an actual set looks like and that was a really cool experience but also an experience that let me dip my toes into is this what I want to do but most of what I was doing was behind the scenes work and editing so that's mostly my background is editing stuff and I was able to edit a couple of things for social media and then for the film festival I edited three short like a minute a minute and a half uh, commercials to play in between a bunch of the films and it was one of those experiences of starting off really honestly starting off cocky then getting really torn down with all the cuts that I had to do of just not being proud of anything to by the end being really proud of what I had done and just hearing stuff like my parents say, oh, I'm really proud of what you did. You did really good. And those are the kinds of the things that I have been taking away is just being broken down, but being brought up by when you actually do something of quality that you can say this was not terrible. And that's sort of my whole background of film school. Yeah. Um, you'll hear a lot of echoes from the story that I'm about to tell. Um, so I am, like I said, I'm a year and a half out of film school. I graduated uh, officially uh, after May of 2020. I actually did a, the graduation ceremony this year. Um, so I started in fall of 2016. I graduated uh, in 20 from high school in 2016. Uh, I went to the University of Kansas, KU in Lawrence, Kansas. It was known for its film program. That's also the the team that we grew up loving because they're they have a great basketball team here and all that. It's only an hour from where I live, uh, so it was convenient enough. Um, and by far of all the places in the area, it had the best film program. There are certain places I was eyeing, like Full Sail, Full Sail University in uh, Orlando. I would have loved to go there if the chips fell where they did, but I didn't have enough. I wasn't mature enough to be able to handle living on my own at that time, and I would have had to move far, far away from home for that. So I ended up settling on KU. Uh, it was pretty much it was the only place I ever visited. And my freshman year, I guess before I get to that, um, in high school was where I developed my my love for filmmaking. Once I got my Wi-Fi in 2013, like I mentioned last week, 
Um, I started falling down the rabbit hole of YouTube. I got into film criticism, a lot of different channels, and I started following the whole industry more closely. I'd always loved movies, uh, but I started following a lot of it really, really closely. I knew when everything was coming out. I listened or I read, watched a bunch of reviews for everything and carried that over to a high school class, uh, cinema studies class, which was a basic crash course into certain genres and certain filmmakers. That's where I saw Blade Runner for the first time, like I mentioned earlier. I saw a lot of Wes Anderson movies. I saw a lot of Kubrick movies um, and and more stuff than than that. But that those were my main takeaways. And it affirmed to me that this was what I was interested in my, my junior year of high school. So then I was officially going to KU after that. Uh, freshman year, I didn't do much, uh, sort of like you. I did the intro to film class that we had. It was FMS, Film and Media Studies uh, 100. And that was learning the basic film terminology, like all the stuff that no one ever actually says, like mise-en-scene. We learned what that meant and stuff like that. And we would watch, we would do one screening every week of a specific genre again, or certain aspect, like certain weeks we would have discussed like new media. So it would be stuff that got put on YouTube, stuff that was on like interactive websites, stuff like that. Uh, it would vary from week to week, but that was the basic crash course. Um, my sophomore year, I started getting more involved. They moved the headquarters of the film office more centrally on campus to me. Uh, so I only lived about five minutes away from that building. Uh, started doing production courses that year. I hadn't, I hadn't known for sure before that what I was interested in yet. I didn't know if I wanted to be a critic. I didn't know if I wanted to actually be a filmmaker. I figured I'd just go and see what caught my eye because I knew the industry as a whole was what I loved. And production was what it became for me. That became my focus. So I I uh, got a production emphasis uh, for my degree, started doing production courses. I did a basic video course that year. And on that, we did two short films. There was a documentary short and a fiction short. And we got split into crews of, I think, ours ended up being three people because one person dropped out during the year. But it was like a group of four or five, and that crew was who made the short films. So we made like a three-minute documentary about the Lawrence Police Department and we uh, and their social media presence and how that sort of relates to perception of the police and everything. And this was in 2017. Uh, and then our, our fiction short, uh, we had to write with the condition that they gave us that you can't have any dialogue whatsoever. And that was that was a challenge, especially for three people. I ended up being the editor on both, even though technically for one, I was the director. I ended up pretty much doing all the editing on it because I was the one that had all the free time who was able to stay late and do the editing. So that was my first introduction to being on a, not even being on a set, I guess, because it's only three of us. It was a lot of getting thrown in the deep end and trying to make stuff work. So it was really sloppy. I'm not happy with either cut of either of them to this day. I've gone in and tried to fix some of them a little bit, but I'm, you know, I, I appreciate how important that was at the time, but I wouldn't say that I think any of that work is good. Junior year, I did uh, intermediate video, video production, which was the first time I would comfortably say that I was working on sets. We had, that was a much more involved creative process that we had. The first, I would say, two months of the semester was introducing each other, workshopping script ideas in a big round circle in class. There were probably 20 of us or so, and just going through the script, refining the scripts, assigning people roles on each production. I think there were five short films in total, and I worked on two or three of them. And that was where I started really feeling passionate about the collaborative process of filmmaking, because I had not felt that before. You know, the sophomore year, it was groups of two or three people that we were really working with. But actually working on a full set with everybody having one specific job to do 
was my first exposure to what the industry is actually like in that regard. And I was happy with a lot of the work that we turned out then. I still worked mostly post-production, but I was working on set doing production assistant stuff. And senior year became more of a focus on the the other stuff. Some some of the history classes I ended up doing screenwriting my senior year. I was confident in where I was going and I was starting to sort of finalize the direction that I was heading in. And then my senior year is when COVID fucked things up. Uh, March 2020, I had two months left of college, then we had to go home. So my capstone class, which was the the culmination of all the other classes that had come before, I had to cobble together a video essay, and it it wasn't great, but I got through it. And what really sucked was our post-production class that I was in for that semester. That got screwed up by COVID. The week, the week everyone got sent home was the week before we were scheduled to do a whole shoot, which I was going to be directing. And we would have been, the rest of the semester would have been editing that together and doing various post-production roles, whatever you were assigned. Uh, so I, I missed out on some of that. I worked mostly as an editor throughout college. That's that's the main job that I've been doing since then. I've done some free, freelance work since graduating. And yeah, it was a lot of my, the production courses that I took. It was a lot of getting thrown into the deep end. But you could feel as each semester and each year was progressing, everybody was getting more comfortable. And the collaborative process was growing as, as time went on. And I really wish we got to finish things off because I think the best work that any of us had done would have been in that last semester, which really sucks. So that's the production aspect. Uh, something that I think we can both talk about is what do you, how do you feel? Because I think we have conflicting opinions based on conversations we've had before. How do you feel about the history classes that you've had to take? I mean, they aren't bad. It really depends on your professor. Because I had a documentary studies class over the summer that I did not like because I was just not interested in a lot of the... I don't want to say like history, but it just spent way too much time on, hey, look, here's a camera. Here's the brothers that created a camera. Here's the early films of people leaving their their <laughs> jobs and stuff, which I had already gone through in so many other courses. And so that's something that I feel can sometimes be repeated a lot is the basics of of movies and where they came from because every class goes through that at the very beginning of their courses now that being said there are interesting things in there i remember for one of our like history courses instead of like being told all these other things we were being told to go watch a lot of the other stuff so i remember one of them we watched hugo from uh scorsese because we were talking about the moon short right where the bullet hits the eye and uh -huh. Yeah, so we're so instead of like we watched it, of course, and we had to read it and all that sort of stuff, but we would always apply it to a more modern film to show the techniques of the past and how they're being used in the present. And I feel like that's something that for me personally helps out a lot because I don't want to say that old films are boring, but not old films are great like everyone says they are. There, there is a reason why modern films, in my opinion, should be taught in modern classes when it's applicable. Because there are plenty of times where there were just really boring, really just boring films that I'm sure you could have found other films that were A, more interesting, or B, more modern, or just better films in general, because there were a lot of them that I could not get through. I don't disagree with you on a lot of that. 
I think my own personal stance on stuff like that is I always felt even stuff that I enjoyed watching, I never I never approached something the right way whenever we were forced to sit in class and watch something. I was always checking the clock on my phone, waiting to see how long we had left. I would look up the movie to see how long it was just so I would know. Like I because I was in class, I just wanted to get out of there. And I think because of that, there was a lot of stuff I didn't appreciate as much as I should have. And some of the online classes I did, like I did a whole class on the history of the silent film, which I'm sure you probably don't think are too exciting. And I don't I don't think a lot of them are too exciting either. And there were a lot of those that I didn't see in their entirety because it was online. I had other stuff to do. I would just sort of get the general idea. And I wish I'd been able to watch more of that stuff than I did. But it was also like I still had the same opinion where it's like this is fucking boring and I don't feel like I'm getting too much out of it. There's some stuff that I understand like from a historical perspective, that at least should be discussed. Like, they had us watch Birth of a Nation, the D.W. Griffith movie from, I think, 1915, which is a horrible, horrible racist movie, but it's also one of the most famous movies ever, and it gets taught because it's a point, it's a big historical, it's a big point in history that that movie came out in. And from that perspective, I understand it. And I I understand why it's there, but I, I like, I didn't watch that movie. I didn't watch any of that movie. It was three hours long, it's a silent film, and it's a horribly offensive movie. I didn't feel the need to actually watch it. I understand its place in history, but I don't need I don't need to devote a whole week of a class to that movie. That was the stance I took on a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I'm definitely close to that as well, of just being like, we don't need to devote this much time to this subject or movie. Yeah. Yeah, that was how I felt. I did my own documentary class that it was one of the ones that got cut short by COVID. But in those first few months, it was a lot of short documentaries or the future ones were like stuff from 1910, 1920, that it's interesting to see some of the filmmaking techniques that they use and see how some of that stuff began. But it's not remotely engaging to watch. And I feel like sitting in class being bored watching something is not the ideal way to take in uh, important information, in my experience. I feel like a lot of stuff that I watched throughout film school just sort of went in one ear and out the other for me. And I, again, as it will be a recurring theme for me, I wish I'd been able to get more out of some of that stuff. But I think just being bored, you're not going to act, I mean, by its nature, boredom is you not paying attention to the thing that is trying to engage you. I think there was a lot that I, could have a lot more that I could have gotten out of the classes if I'd been able to stay engaged. And I think the approach that a lot of those history and theory classes take is not an engaging one in the slightest. I agree with that. I think it's, I don't think that the history is boring. I really just do think it's the way that courses are structured because we had one course that was like intro to, oh wait, I have it right here. Uh, introduction to media studies, I believe is what it was. So instead of like we did read uh, a book and all this other stuff, but you know what our teacher would do? He would put on YouTube videos of people explaining them easier, more modern. I guess modern is the word. It was accessible to a lot of people, whereas I feel like a lot of the other courses are traditional, boring. All right, we're going to spend four weeks looking at silent films and how they change cinema. And it's like, okay, but we don't need to do that. I don't want to say we don't need to do that. We need to see where like those films came from, but we can do it in other modern ways that'll make it more engaging for students that I don't feel they actually update, in my opinion. I'm with you there. 
I I understand the approach, and I'm sure for a lot of people it's effective, but I've never been a textbook person. Like if if my if I'm assigned to read a textbook passage about the thing we're going to be discussing in class, I might skim it just to know what we're talking about. But especially in production classes, I'm like, just let me be on set and do what you need me to do. Like looking at a book, I'm not going to retain all this stuff. It's not the same as looking at a camera set up, looking at lights set up and all that. Actually working on set with the equipment is how I'm going to learn. And I am I can get some very basic knowledge out of a book, but I feel like stuff like that was where it really wasn't effective. Yeah, and there's a quote from uh, Scorsese. Listen, I dunk on Scorsese a lot. I love Marty. Marty makes great films. He's a great <laughs> actor in Shark Tale. Classic. It's his all-time <laughs> best. It's his best movie. But there's this great uh-huh. quote from him where he says, like, you know, we didn't go to film school to learn how to make films. We went to film school to get our hands on the equipment. And I definitely feel like that's always my favorite part of coming back to school is being able to play with the equipment. Because I remember my first year, I was just going with like a Canon 60D or whatever. Then last semester, I was able to go with uh, C200s and some Black Magics. And so like this semester, I'm going to be able to do the same thing in certain cases and being able to actually get my hands on the equipment to use it. And it's just really, I really like that quote from him because he says like straight up, he's like, you don't go to film school to learn how to make a film. Either you have it in you or you don't. You go there to get your hands on the equipment. And I feel like that's definitely been my experience of that. I'm not here. Like, I don't want to say I'm not here to learn, but I'm here to, you know, make movies. I'm here to get my hands on equipment, go out on set, meet people and start making some cool stuff. Yeah, you're you're there to do. You're not there to learn how you're, you're not there to read about how to do. You're there to do. Yeah. And I think I think film school often loses sight of that. For me, it, when I went, I was sort of in that uh, in the mode that he was talking about where I'm like, I, I want to learn how to make movies. And I was really unsure of myself when I first went there because I didn't know what area I wanted to go down. There was a point in my like high school years when I wanted to be a critic because YouTube critics inspired me so much to get into movies that I'm like, I want this to be my life. I want to write about movies or talk about talk about them to a camera, into a microphone and get paid for it. Go see movies early, all that stuff. That sounded fine to me, but I got that creative itch as time went on and film school seemed like actual production seemed like the path for me. And as time went on, I got more comfortable with the equipment, especially using Adobe Premiere for editing. That became my focus. By the time junior year rolled around and we were doing more serious productions, I signed up to be an editor on everything that I could just because I wanted the experience. And I could feel as time went on, the inspiration was growing. And certain classes were more interesting than others. But junior year and senior year was when I was really starting to feel confident. And I think a lot of that was uh, something, uh, something else we can talk about. You hear a lot about the importance of networking when you're in college from professors for my parents especially, I heard it a lot just because I've always been kind of shy. I'm not I'm not the easiest person to approach, and I get a little nervous around people I don't know. And especially in senior, uh, junior year and senior year, when I was in the same classes with the same people, started making forming some relationships and being comfortable with people so that everybody knew what each other's skills were. You could collaborate more. Uh, you could be more efficient because everybody had something they were good at. And that's where it started getting really fun. When everyone's there to do a job, but the passion is there from everybody, it's a really fun environment to be in. I love being on set. I love working with directors in post-production so we can work together to 
meet in the middle and, and make something the best it can be. And the I've only I've only made one like really, really worthwhile friend from film school. Taylor, if you're listening, hello. He's the only one I, I still talk to regularly. That actually making friends to do stuff with is the best thing in the world. Like a couple months ago, the little short film that I had been working on that I've uh, abandoned for the time being, but I'm going to get back to it at some point. I did with friends from high school who know nothing about movies and just hearing them offer little ideas about the short film I was doing reminded me how much I loved being on set in film school, even though it wasn't the same. That's what I love more than anything, that collaborative process with people. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that because in high school, instead of like doing book reports and stuff, what we would do is we would negotiate with the teacher to let us do short films about the books and then like have less to do like of the actual stuff because we were shooting, editing, writing, acting, all that other stuff. So it was it was fun because I tried to take it seriously, you know, as much as I could. But like at the same time, when you're just there making stuff with friends, there's nothing like it. So when I did go to school, I didn't have anyone. And I'm like, contrary to whatever I portray in this podcast, I am definitely like closer to you where I'm a lot shyer. I don't like reach out to a lot of people. I don't make myself super known but the interesting thing is that because of covid i was able to actually do that because in one of my classes i got really bored and so i just started changing my background to different tv episodes so people would just start being like oh can you play this tv episode and i was like all right i got you next time (laughs) so it would be like an episode of phineas and ferb or an episode of like star wars clone wars or whatever and all that stuff one time the teacher noticed and he was like, all right, so it looks like Emmanuel's going to get an A because he definitely knows everything that we're talking about. I did end up getting an A in that class. I wrote it. I wrote a five to six page paper about the Kung Fu Panda trilogy <laughs> and I won him over. I'm incredible. No, I'm kidding. I'm not that, <laughs> you are. Like, you are incredible. Either. I'll say it for you. But I did. But I did actually write that paper about Kung Fu Panda. And he was literally just like, you know, I don't really like animation films, but because of your enthusiasm with this paper, it makes me want to go and rewatch them. That's the highest praise I can give. I'm like, I will take that. Yeah, I'm also a little bit of an overachiever when it comes to stuff like that. But point is, I made myself known through COVID because I'm much more, I guess, easy to approach on the Internet than in person because I'm a lot more awkward and stuff. But I recently had a meeting on Sunday for a position with uh, the film production class that I'll talk about next week because this episode's, you know, getting long. I feel like we're coming to a natural conclusion with stuff. Um, But I got to uh, be with people that I quote unquote knew, but didn't really have a relationship with. But it was like small things, like one of the people that I had worked with in my uh, production class, like he had asked me like, hey, you know, how was your summer? And we got into like this actual conversation about stuff. Or I talked with the president of the production course about things and like we were spitballing ideas back and back with each other. And so I really have felt that with this last semester of being like, oh, these are people that I can know and like I need to. I need to start doing that, but also, like, there are small things that, like, they remember me somehow, and that makes me feel good, because originally, like, I wasn't going to be in this proposed position, but the teacher had emailed me two weeks back saying, like, hey, can you meet us for the manager's meeting on this day? I know you're not a manager, but I want to talk to you about something, and, and that instantly was like, okay, 
I made it an impact somehow. Somehow I stood out and was like somewhere I'm, I'm in someone's head for some reason. And I need to do more of that. Yeah. At least for me personally. And so those are kind of the things of like, I need to remember that it's like, not remember that it's like a team effort, but remember that I have to put in as much effort as I want to get out of it. Yeah. I wish, I wish I had more of that approach. Um, I think if I had a year through COVID like you did, I probably would have made better relationships with some people. I, I just, by my nature, I, I don't, I try, I try not to make an impression. Like that is something I actively try to do. I don't put a ton of effort into like my appearance or anything. I don't really want to stand out in a crowd, stuff like that. And that's just because of my inherent shyness. And I think because of that, there are a lot of connections I could have made further that I didn't. Uh, there's acquaintances that I have. And, you know, I have the one friend that I mentioned earlier. But there was there were a lot of people that, you know, I worked with a little bit, didn't know outside of that, never talked to them outside of classes or the onset roles that we did. And there were a couple situations where I probably could have turned that into better friendships that I did, which would have turned into connections for later on. So, you know, when I when I want to do a short film all of a sudden and no one I know uh, who I know from school is still in the area, that's a problem. You know, stuff like that is where I look back and wish I'd tried a little harder in that regard. You know, that's just that's how my personality is. It was what it was. I move on, you know, but that's something, again, for anybody that might be younger than us who's listening, um, just do what you can find your people. I promise you, if you talk to enough people, you will find something to talk to them about. Uh, my friend who I mentioned, uh, we we bonded through a really boring film theory class that the teacher didn't really know what they were doing at that point. And he and I just started like making jokes about it. We started spitballing with each other. Turned out we have a ton of common and you get the ball rolling on that. And then that's a relationship that we had all through the rest of college and that we've carried past college. So I think just just try and talk to people a little bit, even if it's not your thing. It wasn't my thing. Doesn't sound like it was Manny's thing, but you'd be surprised how little a conversation needs to happen before you can connect with someone. So just make that little extra effort if you can, because I promise you it's really rewarding like but both Manny and I have been saying the collaborative process is the best part of this getting able to work being able to work with people and make something good or at least have have fun trying to make something good is the thing I took up most from film school that I enjoyed the most and that's what I agree with because we both went through that thing of not really knowing anybody or not really making that connection until later on and it's hard it's really hard to make a connection with someone in a class that you just met but sometimes it's a little thing like saying hi or with the digital age changing your background somehow because those were things that somehow made one of us stand out in one way or another but I completely agree with everything he said it's not always going to be happy-go-lucky whenever you're trying to do something but when you do find a connection or somebody that you work with really well, it just becomes something way more fun that can lead into further projects with each other. Yeah, it's inherently a collaborative business. If you want to work in the business, you'll have to work with a lot of people. So in in a way, look at look at film school as good practice for that. Start start talking to people if you can, um, if you can get yourself up to it. Um, I would say talk to your teachers as well. Uh, not all of them are going to be uh, the most valuable resources, but a lot of them know a lot. Like I, my screenwriting class was with an Oscar winner and just picking his brain a little bit in the few conversations I had with him was really fascinating, really eye opening. That whole class 
if I want to segue to the last topic I want to talk about here, the screenwriting class in particular sort of changed my approach into how I view movies. So I, w- I wanted to ask you, how do you feel like film school has changed the way that you look at movies? You know, I am between the two of us. Well, I don't even want to say like that because we both have our own versions of being cynical and all this other stuff. But I've definitely become much more, I don't want to say jaded, but I definitely notice a lot of things more than I usually would. So I like you're a lot more cynical to like Disney and all that stuff, which I am also I'm admittedly cynical to all this other stuff. But like you can enjoy uh, Fast and Furious movies way more than I can for one reason or another, because we just turn our brains off in one way or another. But it's just mm-hmm. that thing of like when I talk with my parents and I'll say something and then they'll be like, oh, why are you so pretentious? I'm like, I'm not I'm not pretentious. It's just like <laughs> it's that weird thing of like perceived pretension versus actual. Yeah, because it's like if mm-hmm. I don't like like a jungle cruise or something like that, people will be like, oh, well, you're pretentious. And it's like maybe I am, maybe I'm not. But like I'll go watch God in the Hat. <laughs> it's yeah. just like everyone's perception of uh of pretension is so different for everyone that it's just made me enjoy movies more and less for different reasons but it's also Mm -hmm. just made me at the same time just let people enjoy what they want because everyone gets something different out of movies yeah i was when i started college this was august of 2016 so we were off the heels of the first suicide squad movie which i defended for months when i started film school my best friend and i the one of the first jokes that we had when we started talking to each other was about Suicide Squad because I said it was one of the better comic book movies of that year and that this was a point in my life where I was super into comic book movies I would go see every Marvel movie I would go see every DC movie like that was what I was into I wasn't as much into the Oscar stuff and and I wasn't into the classics as much as that at that point but I went through enough classes I talked to enough people and just being around it and learning more about how how movies were made, learning more about the business as time went on, it just changed my whole outlook. I started viewing it more as an art form and less as just something that exists to be fun. Like you were talking about with Jungle Cruise a second ago, if, if people, just regular everyday people who aren't in the industry like we are, they watch something and they have fun with it and they don't think about it ever again, that's totally fine. But I got quickly got past the point where I couldn't approach something in that way anymore. I had to, I was, I started looking at what, why is this the way that it is? What are the reasons that business reasons behind why something is made the way that it's made? And I started approaching things more from an artistic standpoint. Uh, like I was having a conversation just today with, with my best friend and we were talking about blockbusters back in the two thousands versus blockbusters today. And I took the stance that I would much rather a movie take a swing and miss greatly than just be the same movie that we keep seeing. And I use Jungle Cruise as an example for that. But like, I would much rather see something try, try to do something interesting, unique, different, whatever word you want to use for it, than just be another movie that comes out. Because I used to defend Disney movies a lot. And I was like, well, at least at the bare minimum, they won't be terrible. Like the acting will be good and stuff like that. But I got past that point because to me, I need more than that at this point. I need a level of earnestness that I don't think I get from super rigidly produced corporate filmmaking that we get today. And I think that's how my approach has changed a lot. And I think school school has been responsible for that. And also a lot of the people that I follow online 
have helped help me approach things in a different way. And I think it's a more positive way for me to approach things. There we have it. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another episode of Nick and Manny's Infinite Podcast. We went longer again this week. Again. We had a lot of good conversations about film school. We did. And we could I could have easily gone another hour. There was some stuff I was gonna mention that I did not. Another time. Maybe maybe when you graduate, we'll do a full retrospective. If we're here. If we're here. We're an infinite podcast, so we will be here. Exactly. The show ends when we die. Nick, tell them where to find you. All right, folks. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Reeves underscore 117. I said I'd be posting on Instagram more, and so far that's been a lie, but maybe in the next week I'll post something on there. And you can follow me over on Twitter at Star Wars Nerd 9. I have a giant squirrel as my profile photo, so you can go follow me there <laughs> where I promote everything regarding this podcast. Once again, you can follow us over on anchor.fm slash infinite dash podcast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, a bunch of other ones. We keep talking about potentially starting a YouTube channel. That would not be very exciting, but... Stay tuned for those of you that want that version of it. That's going to be it for this week. We hope you have a great week, and we'll be here again next week, hopefully. See you next week, everybody.